0: Well, we have uh, tourists and pilgrims and terrorists. (laughs) We're going to talk about all of those today. So our text is going to be taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 17. And... Chapter 17, as we spoke about last week, is part of the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's the prayer that Jesus is praying in the upper room with the disciples. Um, They're going to go from that upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he'll pray again, be arrested, and go to the cross. They have not a clue that that's coming, although Jesus has told them. Jesus himself knows exactly what's coming, and that's the reason that he's praying The way that he's praying. That's why it's important for us to look at what he's praying. So we're just gonna deal with part of it today. But in in a sense, he's addressing a a question that was asked in the Old Testament. And it's a very contemporary, as far as the church is concerned, question. It's in Psalm eleven. And Psalm eleven is just it's a very short Psalm. It's only got seven verses. And he's going to ask a question in verse 3, and that's what we want to look at, and it's one that Jesus is going to help us um, with an answer. And the question is, in verse 3, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's a good question question that many people in the church today are asking. We're looking around and we're seeing that um, our moral values are being eroded. Uh, Ethics doesn't mean a whole lot uh, anymore. Uh, You're not allowed to to share the word of God in the schools um, or in public meetings anymore. These kind of things. And so we're left in a world where we're having a cultural meltdown. Um, The violence is increasing and all those kinds of things. And it seems like the very foundation, the pillars, even the things which our country has been built on, constitution-wise and everything else, all of these things are being eroded away and transformed and and undercut. Um, The media has managed to um, have a, a very concentrated effort at taking away all of our heroes. Have you noticed that? They're undercutting all the, uh, the role models that we've had in the past and that uh, the, those of us that are older when we were younger, these were the role models of people who lived, founders of the country, um, and they have systematically gone through and undercut the, the character of the people who founded the country, raising questions and doubts. And so all of these things are being undervalued and undercut. And so it's a good question, a contemporary question, that David asked in Psalm 11. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, if we look at contemporary Christian responses to what's happening in the world today, we're going to find out that uh, they're not really new. Uh, Solomon had it right in Ecclesiastes. There isn't anything new under the sun. And that's true whether you're talking about sin or violence or righteousness or anything else. There's not a lot new. Uh, innovative ways of expressing it, maybe, but that's about it. The foundation underlying those things is exactly the same. So, even in Jesus' day, you had different responses to the revelation from God. So we'll look, uh, just take a, a quick survey of these guys and see that um, pretty much that's what we have facing us today. And then we'll look at the prayer of Jesus in John 17 to how, what he says about it. So, let's start with the state. Um, In Jesus' day, you had two representatives that were close, Herod and Pilate. Herod was um, the head of the Jewish. He's the figurehead, the puppet that Rome allowed to be there. Pilate was the Roman governor set there to make sure that Herod did what he was supposed to do. They didn't like each other. Um, They represented two different Uh, opposing political opinions and views about who should run the country. However, their opposition to Jesus drew these political adversaries together in order to conspire and work together to crucify Jesus. So we have politicians, secular politicians, both of them, both men were corrupt. Um, Both were power hungry and were out, they were very ambitious men. And these were the political leaders uh, that were local. And even though they opposed each other, they were together in their opposition of Christ. So we see a similar kind of thing here. In the temple we had Caiaphas who was the high priest. He was also corrupt, out to make a name and lots of money and power. And so the religious leaders were corrupted as as corrupt as the secular rulers. And yet they were in charge of the temple, its offerings, its sacrifices, the worship of God. They were setting the standards. And so we have um, a corrupt temple cooperating with a corrupt government in opposition to Christ. Well, you had a group called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were, it was a very small um, aristocratic priesthood. The name Sadducees means righteous ones. All the high priests came from this group. It was a tight-knit, very wealthy, very powerful group. And that's what they were there for. Um, they were Hellenistic in their, in their leanings, which meant that they were very liberal at that time. And what they were trying to do was they were trying to foster onto, and these are the religious leaders, the priests, foster onto their Jewish society Greek ideas. It was a secularization of religion um, because the Sadducees owed their position they were there by permission of the secular rulers and they knew that if they opposed them they could lose their job and their money and it's all about money and it's all about power for the Sadducees they, the head of the religious organization there so these were the, the righteous ones and they, were, they didn't believe in life after death they didn't believe in the resurrection obviously They didn't believe in a spiritual life at all. No angels, no demons. Only the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were important. So they rejected all the prophets. And they were the ones in charge of the temple. And so you've got a a very uh, secular, powerful, image-conscious group that was in charge of of the, of the ritual and liturgy of the church. Another slightly larger group was called the Pharisees. And whereas the Sadducees focused all their power and attention on the temple, the Pharisees focused on the synagogue, the local church is what we would call it. And the Pharisees were, yeah, their name means separated ones. And they fo- these were laymen. And they were focusing in on orthodoxy based on the scriptures and tradition. And um, they were looking for ritual purity. We would call them the legalists today. These were good, moral, uh, standard people. They would be good neighbors, but they did everything by the book and very, very right. If it was a New Testament church, these would be the people at um, Ephesus that were strong on orthodoxy, right teaching, making sure everybody dotted their I's and crossed their T's at the right time, uh, rules and regulations, checking to see that your doctrine and your teaching was right, all of that sort of thing, and completely dead, and completely lifeless. But they were right. And so they judged everybody through their filters of what they considered right and wrong. Uh, Focusing in on the scriptures, they knew the scriptures well, and they judged everybody else so they were constantly judging others and if you didn't agree with them then obviously you had to be wrong and they looked down wherever you have a legalistic church you've got people that are are very tight and restricted very judgmental and very very proud and they condemn everybody else and they're so proud of their righteousness Now. Carson made a statement over here. He said one of the things about a pilgrim is a pilgrim's got to do right things so that God will think you're worthy enough. He would have fit right in with the Pharisees. (laughs) Because it's not about how much we do, is it? So the biblical teaching about holiness is this. If you are holy, everything you do is holy. If you are not holy, nothing you can do is holy. And you can't do enough to be holy. You can never make up. But the Pharisees thought you could, and they thought they had, and they were convinced. We are the separated ones. Ain't no sin on us. Don't <laughs> know about you, but on us there is none. And that's the way they lived. There are the Herodians. Now, the Herodians, these were the guys who supported Herod. And what they were doing was that it was a political party and what they wanted to do was keep the status quo. Things are going fine. We don't want anybody rocking the boat. Uh, so, the Pharisees were condemning Jesus. The Sadducees saw him as a threat. The Herodians said, wait a minute, he's rocking the boat. So, they didn't like him either because they wanted everything the status quo Now have another group called the zealots uh, these were the Maccabees He's, some would call them freedom fighters others would call them terrorists these were the zealots they were the ones who were, were advocating an independent Jewish state and they were very happy to violently oppose Rome they were the ones who started the revolts and they're the ones who eventually caused the destruction of the whole country and the state because of their violent opposition. That's the zealots. Remember, one of them was a disciple of Jesus, Simon the Zealot. So Jesus had a guy who had terrorist leanings in his group. There's hope. <laughs> he had tax collectors um, people who are social outcasts, there's hope for us. So, then we had a group called the Essenes. Now, the Essenes were like some of the Christian groups today. We want to escape, you know, uh, well look, the government's all corrupt, and and the temple's corrupt, the synagogue's corrupt, everybody's corrupt. Well, uh, what's our solution? Let's run away and hide. We'll run away and found a desert community out here where we can be separated from all these sinful things that are around us and we can huddle together and we can pray and read the scripture and then we can be ready for when the Lord comes back, we'll be ready for him. And we won't be contaminated or polluted by the world. So let's get out of our churches because they're too liberal and let's let's run away and we can make a a little group of like-minded people. It's, so then we can be with people that we like and we don't have to deal with people that, that are different than us. A lot of Christians are like that, you know. Uh, in, in South Africa, they call it the logger uh, mentality. A logger is like circle the wagons and get inside, you know, <laughs> and we can shoot at everybody outside the circle. And so those, those were the Essenes. Now, some of these people were good people. Uh, Pharisees were good people. You would have you would have benefited if they were your next door neighbor. Essenes were good people. People who were trying to do it right. People who were searching the scriptures and knew the scriptures well. But the problem was, when God stepped into history in the person of his son, in their righteousness, they rejected God. In their righteousness, they rejected God. So sometimes I wonder where would Jesus be today in our society? If he moved into Uvalde where would he live and who would he associate with? Better, who would be looking for him and accepting him? Would he be welcome? John 17, Jesus is praying in the upper room praying for his disciples. Now I want to just take a it's the longest prayer, recorded prayer that we have of, of Jesus. And everything's important in it. But I want to take uh, two or three verses out because it's things that he repeated. And if he's repeating things in this prayer, that means that he considered it very important. So we want to look starting in verse nine. He's praying about his disciples. I pray for them. Jesus is praying for his disciples. He's praying for you and for me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. There's going to be other times when he does pray for the world, but at this point, um, focusing in on what's going to take place in the coming crucifixion, Jesus is very concerned Because he's about to leave this physical world. He's going to to die. And he's wanting to make sure that his disciples are prepared for this. And so he's praying for us. I pray for them. Praying for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. That's an incredible statement considering the men that are in that room. Uh, You got people like Peter, big heart, ready to go. He he, he speaks and acts before he stops and thinks, always uh, impetuous, doing things wrong. He's going to make promises this very night and he's going to break every one of them before the morning comes. Good heart, fully intentioned to do what he's saying with his mouth. Jesus is looking at his heart and he knows better. And Peter thinks, no, I know better than you what's going on inside me. Some of us as Christians are that way, aren't we? I know what you're saying, Lord, but you don't really know me. And Jesus is saying, I know you better than you know yourself. And he's always right. Got people like Thomas who have struggled with their doubts and their unbelief. Um, people like Matthew who had been a tax collector. Um, people who were liars and cheaters and thieves and robbers and people like us. And Jesus says I have got glory through them. It's an incredible statement that Jesus makes. I will remain The world no longer, Jesus says, but they are still in the world. Notice what he says. Where are we supposed to be? In the world. Um, He says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. We are to be in the world but we're not to be isolated and alone. We are to be in the world together. And that's what the church is all about, isn't it? Being in the world but together. We're not by ourselves. We're not out here on a limb by our our lonesome. We have 2,000 years of church history and thousands of years before that of Old Testament prophecy and fulfillment and God's revelation of Himself. So we aren't alone. And so Jesus is praying for them. We'll pick it up again in verse 13. I'm coming to you now, but but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. So Jesus is praying and he's saying these things so that the disciples can be filled with joy. Now the next three or four days are going to be the worst days of their life. They're going to see Jesus crucified, publicly humiliated, ridiculed, made fun of, and excruciatingly, brutally put to death. And they're going to see that. And all their hopes and all their dreams and all their aspirations are dying on that cross with him. They've left everything to follow him for three years, three and a half years. They've been his closest followers. They've all deserted him and fled because of fear for their life. And, they, and he's dead. There's a practical brutality of life that challenges everything that God has ever told us. Hard to argue with a Roman spirit. Hard to argue with nails studded into flesh and back being torn by whips. It's hard to argue in those kind of things. And Jesus didn't argue. He embraced them, forgave them, cleansed them, and invited them into life. So he's saying, I want my joy to be in them. And when life comes, it's a joyous thing. When babies are born in an ordinary um, situation, it's a time of great joy and praise. There are times when birth of children is not good news. But in a, a healthy situation, a normal situation, That's good news, isn't it? And people rejoice over new life. And so Jesus is praying that we would be in the world with this kind of joy. One of the things about um, the Pharisees is that they were right in much of their theology, but there was no joy. You can see too many happy Pharisees. (laughs) and you don't find very many legalistic Christians that are filled with joy. There's a smile on the face because that's what the rule book says you're supposed to do, you know. And so you put a smile on your face and nothing is ever wrong and everything is always right because bad things don't happen to good people. So whatever's going on within you, you're happy. (laughs) How are you doing today? Oh, I'm great. (laughs) I'm fine. (laughs) Inside I'm dying. I'm broken. I'm hurting. But I'm fine. How are you? (laughs) That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a joy that he gives strength in the face of weakness, that gives hope in the face of despair, that gives purpose in the place when everybody else is pulling out their hair. It's the kind of joy that the prophets had when they were seeing their country destroyed around them and their hearts were broken for that. But there was a joy because they had an assurance and a peace which the world couldn't take away and the circumstances couldn't damage or affect. That's the joy Jesus is talking about. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am not of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one." I said it twice. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. This is one of the things that bothers me about, uh, about doctrines about the rapture. It's an escapism. Get us out of here so that we don't have to hurt or suffer. I don't see that in the scripture. I don't see God shielding his people. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, Jesus is saying. I want them there. You ever use salt on your food or in your cooking? Why do you use salt? What does it do? It adds flavor. What else does it do? It preserves, it's a preservative. What else does it do? It can be a healing agent as well. So, if I have a plate of food and I want, I want to change the flavor, I'll go get a salt shaker and I'll set it right here. Boy, that tastes great. <clears throat> well, no. Uh, well, I've got the salt. You are the salt of the earth. Well, if I take this salt and I set it on the shelf, it's not helping me and it's not making any changes. It's not doing anything. It's, it's got all the potential. It's there. Well, okay, now I've got the salt shaker. So I've got the salt shaker. So it hasn't changed anything. It doesn't change anything until you put the salt on the food. Christians were not meant here to be isolated and alone. We are here to have an impact on the society and people around us. We're not all the salt getting together and let's go get in the shaker together. It's not that kind of deal. (coughs) Then we're just a bunch of salt in the shaker and we're not doing anything except sitting on the shelf. So, the purpose of salt is you shake it out and it goes into the food, and what happens to the salt? What happens to the salt? How does it influence the food? It dissolves. It gives of itself. And everything the salt touches is influenced, it's changed. Jesus is saying, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world I'm praying that you protect them in the world. Keep them so that they can be the salt that's going to have an impact and a change agent where they are in their homes, in their neighborhoods, in the schools, in their workplace, in their social gatherings, in the times when they're having fun. The salt is salt. So he's saying, I'm praying. Not that you take them out, but you protect them from the evil one. Then he says in verse 20, some more good news. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This word sent is a key word in the Gospel of John, one of many. But it's a key word. Um, It comes to focus in chapter 9 when he's dealing with the man born blind. Uh, The whole thing about the Pool of Siloam, the Pool of Siloam means sent. And Jesus comes and he sends the man there and he washes his eyes. And God has actually sent this man because the Pharisees are asking Our disciples are asking Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Did his parents sin or was it something that he had done before he was born, that he was born blind? Uh, There has to be a reason. Somebody messed up somewhere for this guy to be born blind. Now he's 38 years old. Jesus said none, neither one of those. God sent him at that time in that place to be a witness to the Pharisees of Jesus' day. God sent him. In his affliction, God sent him to be the witness. So Jesus says, when Christians, together, in the world, the presence of the Lord is with us, then the world can believe that God truly did send the Son. And more than that, He says, I'm going to send them. In verse 26, I've made you known to them. Jesus has made God known to the disciples and will continue to make you know in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So, What Jesus was doing in his earthly life was partly imparting this revelation of who God is to these twelve men. And at this time, they're reduced to eleven, because one has already chosen uh, the things of this world. And Satan entered into him, and he left. So they're down to eleven. So he shared and imparted his life to these eleven, that they might be change agents in the rest of the world. He's going to send them out. He says back in verse 18, As you, as God, sent Jesus into the world, Jesus says, I have sent them, the disciples, into the world. So Jesus has taken the salt, he's the one who put the salt in, through them knowing who God was, through Jesus imparting his life to them, he created them and made them to be salt. And he's put them in the salt shaker. And now that Jesus is getting ready to leave, he says, okay, now it's time. Now it's time. I'm going to send you, just like the Father loved the world, so he sent the Son. Jesus is saying, in the very same way, for the very same purpose, I am now sending you. As the Father sent me, Jesus is sending you and me. Where is he sending us? Into the world. Does that mean we all have to go to China? No. It may mean we need to go next door or across the street. But he sent us all. It may mean that we need to call someone in our family that we haven't talked to for years and check up on them. It may be that as he works within us that we have to talk to, to people that we work with. And, you know, uh, because life is life, isn't it? People that we work with, people that we come in contact with, people that we just casually brush shoulders with, like driving or in the grocery store or somebody who's waiting on us or not waiting on us. Uh, there's interpersonal contacts everywhere we go. People see how we live. They pick up on the attitudes that we have. They listen to our words. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the words that come out of our mouth is a witness to everyone who hears those words. We're telling them what's in my heart. So if there's cursings and bitterness coming out, we're saying this is a man that's full of curse and bitter. If there's praise and joy coming out, this is a person who's filled with praise and joys. If there's thanksgiving, this is a thankful person. If there's peace, even in the midst of crisis, that's a peaceful person. Now, when you're in a situation where there's crisis and you're at peace people are panicking they're running around they don't know what to do they're, they're, somebody's got to do something because you know if something's wrong then the thing is you have to go into action well you could you know you have a grease fire you could pour water on it <laughs> I burned myself really badly when I was a kid that way that's the wrong thing to do I was doing something I was being proactive just about burned the kitchen down And burned me in the process. Didn't help at all. Made it worse. So, doing is not always the right thing to do, is it? So, the kind of thing is that if a person is peaceful and calm in that situation, they're not going to understand, they're not going to know, but they'll know, they'll see the peace when they, and they'll recognize it. So, Peter says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. Because if we're living our life right, People will come to you and ask. I'm not going to ask you, why are you so full of bitterness of hate today? You know, they don't normally ask you that. They all know why. They all feel the same way. But they will come and say, Why, when I curse you, you give a blessing and there's no animosity and hatred returned. That gets their attention. If you cursed back, they expect that everything's normal. Deal with it. But if they curse and you bless, then they don't know what to do. So we're called to be salt and light that shines in the darkness. So we're going through life and we're saying that life is a journey. Some of us, especially in the church, are like tourists. We've bought our insurance, we've got our visas, we're in good shape. We can go through, we can take in the sights, we can do the things that we enjoy doing. When we get ready to, we can leave. And I think, well, that's, Christianity is a pretty nice deal here, you know? Get the best of everything, and anytime a problem comes, we can just go. But life isn't that way, is it? So God is looking for pilgrims, people who will engage, people who will dig beyond the surface and see what's really there. It's more than the travel locations, the tourist attractions. How are the people living around here? Um, You could go to Spain during the Olympics. They built all these fine buildings. And there they were. And you could go one block away and see the poverty and the squalor and the ghettos and the hurting people that were everywhere. But you could go to the Olympics. Everything's fine. Get the best food. a Nice place to stay. Good transportation, everybody's watching out for you, making sure you're safe, you're good, you know. Right there, those people, their life hasn't changed at all. We were in South Africa when they were getting ready for some of the games down there. And um, they actually moved people away out of their homes so they could build the construction things and there wasn't any place for these people to go. Moved them out. Sorry, we need your land for the parking lot for the people going to the Olympics come the bulldozers and I'll see you later. Everything they had, bulldozer comes right through. So, tourist or pilgrim? Are we going to be engaged? Uh, actively participating? Jesus is praying for us. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. I want you to protect them while they're there so that they can be what you've called them to be. And as God has sent Jesus into the world, Jesus says, I'm sending you. But... I'm going with you. I'm going with you. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you haven't put us here on our own, but that through your grace and because of your unspeakable love, you're going with us. You've gone before to prepare the way. You've lived as an example to us. You've come and died on the cross to change us from within and you've promised to be with us. You've given us of your spirit so that we would know of your presence with us. And as we walk through this world, we walk through it, seeing through your eyes, feeling with your heart, moved by what moves you. We pray, Lord, that you would change us from within, that you would help us to be what you've called us to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.